It's 6 o'clock in London, it's 1 p.m. in New York, it's 1 a.m. in Hong Kong, 3 a.m. in Sydney, 10 a.m. in San Francisco, and 10.30 at night in Mumbai. Good morning, greetings, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you are in the world. Right now, today, we are in... I would love to say sunny, but actually it's been raining all day. There you go. You can't beat a typical character set sometimes. London, capital of the free financial market world. My name is Patrick L. Young, the IPO live stream episode 38. That's series seven, episode two, for those of you who've been checking out the precise seriesology starts here. And we're back from our holidays, obviously, ladies and gentlemen. That's the first and most important thing to notice today. I hope you all had a wonderful summer or indeed a wonderful winter break wherever you were in the world. News from me. Gosh, well, so many things have been happening which were wildly exciting. First of all, I joined the board as an executive director of a wonderful company called Valerian Blockchain. That's a microcap quoted on the Aqua Stock Exchange in London. And I'm very, very proud and honoured to be part of the strategy of that business going forward, which revolves around, of course, what we can possibly do with the wonderful world of Bitcoin, blockchain and cryptocurrency with a particular element, of course, first up from the Valerian perspective on how blockchain works and goes forward. In the meantime, during the course of summer, of course, we had all sorts of exciting events in the parish markets and the greater world. In fact, it's so long since we've been online that wow, way back when we were last here, most people still thought Joe Biden was a credible president. How long that summer holiday break seems to have been. Now, talking about Bitcoin, blockchain, cryptocurrency and the world of financial markets, that brings us to our theme for today. We've got, well, I would hesitate to say an illustrious, wonderful and esteemed guest because it's me. It's an Ask Me Anything format today, AMA, about this wonderful little baby, Victory or Death, my most recent book. It's a fascinating tale all about blockchain, cryptocurrency and the fintech world. And the wondrous Telegram group that operates for the shareholders of Valerian Blockchain were very eager to ask me some questions about the book. Therefore, this AMA was born. Ladies and gentlemen, however you're watching us today, Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever methodology you be joining us, such as even YouTube, ask us a question. Put something in the comments. We'll be delighted to hear from you. Please send us a little love. It really, really helps, most importantly, get this series up the rankings so that the AI bots will make us a lot more popular. And therefore, we will be seen by more people. And therefore, ergo, we'll be able to get the message out about free markets, about financial individual opportunities for everybody across the world and of course tell tales of blockchain exchanges and so on if you're fascinated by the exchange world don't forget to check into exchange invest my daily newsletter which is the unique bourse business bulletin the water cooler of the exchange industry if you will okay we've got questions coming in today already it's wildly exciting thank you very very much for the plethora of questions that have been asked and hello and greetings and thank you very much Romilly Wakeling it's a delight to hear from you today hope you're still celebrating McLaren's incredible victory in the Italian Grand Prix at the weekend wasn't that just a wonderful event for Daniel Ricciardo fabulous to see and Lando Norris finishing second Romilly has very kindly emailed me some great questions so we're going to move to those in just a minute 
First of all, I would like to move to a question that we've had from Peter. Peter Pan, as he's known in our in our Twitter world, and in fact, Peter Secon by his real name. He's the administrator of the Telegram group for Valerian Blockchain. Go look it up. It's, it's a wonderful organization if you're interested in that particular stock. But please, do your own research before you get into the world of investing. So, Patrick, back in 1999, you predicted much of where fintech was heading. Now in 2020, where do you see the next 20 years heading? Well, there's a good opener for starters, isn't it, ladies and gentlemen? So, 1999, I wrote a book called Capital Market Revolution. It was published on July the 1st. It was published by the Financial Times Prentice Hall, and it became effectively the first best-selling book of fintech. This was actually pretty much 10 years before anybody even used the word fintech. It discussed the future of things like cryptocurrency, the way that markets would go electronic, and therefore we would see a very, very different world indeed to what things were happening. Where do I see things going in the course of the next 20 years? Look, one thing is that you've got to appreciate that 20 years into this revolution, Peter and everybody else from the Telegram group and all of you who are watching this evening, we still haven't even managed to get through most of the stuff that was actually predicted in capital market revolution. We're still probably only 60, 70, 80% there. I thought by now, for example, we would see a lot more ubiquity amongst electronic money. One thing I can see happening though in a post-COVID world, which is very interesting anecdotally, might be fiat coin, but there's not a lot of places that are actually taking notes these days. In London, for example, part of that's due to COVID, but a lot of it's also due to easy accounting. From there, obviously, it's easier to move into electronic transaction units and see the change in digital currency that's going to drive our world forward. In that respect, I think one of the biggest changes that we're going to see in the next 20 years is going to be how effectively your life is dictated. And I mean, I talk about this in the book, you know, Effectively, if you want to see your whole life in the palm of your hand, what you've got to do is hold up your mobile device. Because if you hold up your mobile device, it is your everything these days. And increasingly, that is now your wallet, Google Pay, for example, for fiat money. It's your banking app. It's something like Wise, TransferWise, something like that. It's got your stock trading app on it. If you look at the way that the world of investing has been going, gosh, the vast majority of signups for stock trading accounts and related dealing accounts these days are actually through mobile device. Absolutely incredible the way the world has turned on its head in the course of 10 years. So therefore, the mobile world is obviously going to make us a lot more mobile in every possible sense of the world. But it's also going to redefine how we look at assets. And I think there's a very interesting issue here, which is that essentially, if you have an asset, whatever that is, a trading unit, and it could be a piece of art, some might call it a non-fungible token. It could equally be something which is actually asset-based, such as property or something else which has traditionally been rather liquid. could also be an asset based on a stock or a share. Any of those things are now going to become very, very much fungible electronic assets. Actually, we've already seen things like this happening. If you look at Alipay, for instance, the, the Alibaba and financial product, they were offering even up until last year, at the point in time when we were seeing um, a, a clampdown by the Chinese authorities, as we did the end of last year, early this year on, on Chinese apps for payment. But nonetheless, they had the capacity that you could immediately go and put your money into 
a whole range of assets overnight. So while you slept in China, your money could be working away by tracking the S&P 500 index in the United States of America. Now that I think is where we're going to be going. It's an instant always on economy where you're gonna be able to move assets incredibly easily around the world. Now that causes a huge problem for certain countries, not so much the likes of the UK or the United States of America, because they're pretty much free, open, free market economies where you're allowed to move your currency around. Some of you are old enough, of course, will remember that before Margaret Thatcher came to power, there were actually vast restrictions on how many pounds you could get out of the country. A very brave move by Mrs. Thatcher and something which propelled London to being the true modern global financial powerhouse that it is today. Now that links us, and we're going to come back to the theme of all of the things that are going to be happening over the course of the next 20 years, Peter, during the rest of the conversation. You ask the question, with El Salvador making Bitcoin legal tender and Panama introducing a bill for regulating cryptocurrency, will we soon see the demise of the dollar? You could also see, actually, Peter, the whole point about something mm -hmm. coming along, which is the uh, Ukrainians are also passing law at this point in time. Now, the demise of the dollar. Hmm. I have to say, I'm not really sure that seeing Z-grade, absolutely useless currencies, such as Ukrainian hryvnia, such as whatever they're calling the Panamanian currency or the El Salvadorian currency these days, and those people have flirted with the dollar on and off and so on. But truly, the factor we're getting there is that we're seeing a very, very different marketplace, which is small economies are trying to find a relevant unit of currency that people are willing to trust them with. And if you look at, for example, the crisis that's taken place in the Lebanon in the course of the last year or so, where they've had hyperinflation, we're now at, what, 1,500 or more Lebanese pounds to the US dollar. It's a disaster. Smaller emerging markets need to find a coherent way that they can find a universal unit of currency which is going to enable them to attract more investment and also not see the rapid depreciation in value that they've traditionally seen over time of their currencies. So that leads us into a whole interesting new world of how they might replace those, which is why they're trying to get towards the idea of utilizing something like Bitcoin as legal tender. A move which I must say I think is slightly questionable, perhaps for reasons we'll get on to slightly later. But will that cause us to see the demise of the US dollar? Okay, here's a big 20-year theme for you, going back to your original question, Peter. I mentioned the fact that over 20 years of capital market revolution so far, we're still nowhere near the end game of the revolution. In fact, we're, we're really, well, if we could all go Churchillian about this, and I could say we're not so much at the beginning of the end, we're barely even at the end of the beginning with how things are going. And that's because people have yet to truly become digital natives. If you look at, for example, my generation, the most advanced of us, and I'm gonna say that I'm pretty much, I think I'm in that vogue, we're born analog, but we're living digital. But on the other hand, if you look at the vast multitude of people who are in the world at this juncture in time, at my age and older, they are not digital. I'll give you a great example. I was at the airport a couple of weeks ago, flying to London and you know, British Airways, they've sent out these missives saying bring your COVID form and you've got 150 other forms. But actually, you know what? Put them all on your mobile phone. 
Now I have to say, watching check-in was painless, painful, because you're sitting there with a whole bunch of people who were all going, ah, uh, uh, what does this button do? And they're playing with the Fisher-Price Activity Center, which is their mobile phone, trying to find things like downloaded documents. We've a long way to go yet before people become really, truly digitally native. We've a long way to go before we also get currency as a digitally native thing. That is therefore why the US dollar, yes, over time, I think the influence of the US dollar is waning. If you look at the fiat currency world, a lot of people argue very strongly that, oh, it's a great power thing. So therefore, if China overtakes the United States of America, now that's a whole separate conversation, by the way, but if China overtakes the United States of America as the most powerful economy on earth, then what happens? You know, the Chinese yuan becomes the most important currency and it becomes the major reserve currency, which is the way that people think about because previously, for example, when the British economy was surpassed by the United States of American economy, ultimately the dollar came to the fore. Now we've got this fascinating third dimension, which is the rise of cryptocurrency and digital-based assets, which is why we're seeing central bankers fighting back with central bank digital currency. As we go through all of that missive, you're asking the question, is this the death of the dollar? Um, or at least you've asked, is that gonna promote the demise of the US dollar? I think not in every possible sense in that I don't think it's going to kill the dollar. I don't think it's going to kill anything because ultimately I think the US dollar will survive. Central bank digital currency may help promulgate the dollar much further in the meantime, but ultimately the US dollar remains an incredible benchmark for the world. Where things get difficult for the Americans are that if they run out of exorbitant privilege, if the rest of the world decides they're not going to spend all of this time actually funding the Americans, then clearly it could be a down move for the US dollar. That means the Americans need to have coherent government that doesn't spend like a footballer's wife. That's probably another conversation that I'm going to park for the time being because that's a kind of macro discussion. Also, while I rattle through these questions, I see we're getting a whole series of comments and questions coming in, which are really, really exciting. So gosh, I'm not sure how I pronounce this, Vapasad? Vape card. I'm so sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name. Um, whatever, whatever. It's not very difficult to tell vape card whether you're male or female. So, hello, good evening. Thank you so much for your question. Cryptocurrency was already seen as a liberating force. However, do you see blockchain eventually becoming a device used to control us once all our data starts becoming available on chain? Great question. Yeah, it's very funny how. 20 years ago, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, the internet was going to solve everything because we were going to get rid of government. We were going to have this wonderful vestige. And remember, I've been doing business on the internet since what, 1994, my goodness, when I was clearly, I don't know, um, an eon or something. Um, it's a fascinating concept that the more that the libertarians manage to push the internet, the more the government's pushed back. And therefore you have the very heavily controlled areas of the internet, such as for example, potentially in countries like China, you've got areas of countries which have tried to control the internet. I mean, particularly the United Kingdom's government under the entirely analog and incompetent Theresa May as prime minister was trying to do all sorts of things to control the internet just, just a couple of years ago, which died out. Certainly the capture of data is going to become an incredibly worrying and concerning feature 
for people across the world. And that's going to leave us with a very, very interesting situ situation, which is we're not quite in the matrix yet or one of those other dystopian views of the future. But boy, we are certainly absolutely in the middle of the eye of a storm where people's data needs to be kept private. There needs to be some sort of an opportunity to ensure that we don't see this blockchain of data being taken up. The distribution works to our advantage within the distributed ledger rather than simply becoming a noose around our neck and therefore becoming a dystopian thing. I'm not sure, therefore, that I think that ultimately it's going to become a device to control us because I think that many distributed ledgers will communicate with each other in the future. And let's say that one of the big things that's been the huge change over the course of the last 10 years was if you stood up 10 years ago, in fact, actually nine years ago, I think I stood up a, a conference in the University of Turin uh, talking about the Copernican revolution in finance, which was blockchain and cryptocurrency people were convinced that there was a singularity. It was going to be the Bitcoin, and that was going to be the only blockchain out there. As we can see at the moment, there are a myriad of blockchains. We could spend just the rest of the whole bulletin talking about what different blockchains there are. I think the fact that there are going to be many different competing blockchains will allow people to have better privacy and a better opportunity to control that. But obviously, we have to be very, very concerned because there are certain governments in particular who seem to be nefarious actors in this whole feature. So thank you very much, Fabcad. It's been a real pleasure to have you here. Um, now, I think the next question that I'm looking at was, um, with more and more people getting involved with cryptocurrency, where does this leave the banking system, which has been asked by Peter Pan? Well, here's the thing. I mean, actually, I talk about that directly in the book, uh, This Wondrous Tome with a forward by Jeffrey Sprecher, the chairman of the New York Stock Exchange, Victory or Death, which you can buy at Amazon and other decent stores online and around the world. The banking system is a function of a huge 500-year megacycle. I mean, the 500-year megacycle was the cycle that was driven by the creation of double entry bookkeeping. Now, from double entry bookkeeping, we're probably moving towards a completely new system, double stroke, triple entry bookkeeping with a digital ledger, which is going to be even much more important and so on in the in the ultimate schema of things, because it's going to keep, I think it's going to restrict the opportunities for fraud very, very dramatically across the financial system. And that's something wonderful about the blockchain itself. The banking system has effectively run its course as a conventional system. It's just too expensive. So if you look at what's happening in I mean, traded markets, you can go into a traded market. And I don't mean Robin Hood are these places where they're artificially giving you free prices. If you actually pay the full on price um, for a question, you know, for, for, a, for a transaction in financial markets, you can do a million dollars worth of euro dollars for less than a dollar through a broker, through the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. The same for all manner of contracts and other derivatives and futures the world over. I think that leaves the banking system at a huge disadvantage because ultimately the banking system is used to a thousand basis points on everything. 10 percentage points has been their kind of markup. Even on mortgages, they're used to at least 300 basis points there or thereabouts. 250, absolute minimum 175. It's a 1.75% markup, which is incredible because you're looking at the best exchanges in the world are at a frac 
fraction of a basis point in terms of what's going on. So that's a really, really key factor in terms of what's going on in the world. I'm sorry, I'm trying to read my auto queue here and it is speeding along. There are so many questions, which is fabulous. We're going to get to all your questions before I sit down this evening. Thank you so much for them. It's really, really great to have your engagement today. Thank you to all the members of the Valerian Blockchain Group. Thank you to the readers of Exchange Invest. Gosh, this is fun, ladies and gentlemen, even with just me in the studio. So where does that leave the banking system? The banking system has to change. The banking system has to become much more of a service-driven sector. Will banking die? No, the US dollar won't die, banking won't die. Why does it not die? Because effectively, there's always going to be a niche need for it. Second of all, it's a 500-year super cycle. So 500-year super cycles, even if everything goes terribly wrong for the banking business, they're still gonna be around in 100 years time, quite substantively in the world. Will there be other fintechs? Will there be other entities which may have surpassed a huge number of the banks oh yes there will but at the same time think about it another way banks have effectively been constricting or restricting access to money and the transfer of money for many years now partly due to regulation which is obviously not their fault but also partly due to the nature of their own services which are not necessarily super efficient what's fintech doing what's blockchain doing to that it's expanding people's access to finance and that makes for a very very exciting world because the more we expand access the more we can manage to engage more and more people in the world of commerce. The more people can be empowered through their mobile phones, and that's a 20-year trend, as I was talking about before, in the way that, for example, Africa has leapfrogged technology, so they never went through the old idea of going from copper cable to fiber optic. They just jumped straight to mobile. By using their devices, they're going to be able to trade and transact with us much more easily, provided governments permit it, of course. That's always the bogeyman out there, is the blob. That drives us to a very, very exciting new world where the banking system can continue to profit enormously for many years if it finds its own niche. But upcoming fintech companies, particularly those that are willing to use the digital asset basis of settling things, have got an incredible opportunity to manage to make huge amounts of money. Now, Peter Pan's asked a question. I'm going to come to Romilly in just a second because Peter's asked, do I think that the Bitcoin market cap may be worth more than gold eventually? Yes, it might be, but I'm not really convinced. Okay, I, I'm actually not one of these Bitcoin permabills. I know there are people out there that say each Bitcoin is going to be worth $500,000, it's going to be worth $500 million, it's digital gold. No, it's not. Actually, I, I'm really quite cynical. I wouldn't say I'm a Bitcoin minimalist, but I'm certainly not a Bitcoin maximalist. It's always going to have a certain value because it's going to have a certain cachet around the world. But ultimately, what's good about gold? You can wear it. You can use it in various industrial processes. It has some form of function. Bitcoin is just bits and bytes. There's absolutely nothing underpinning it. I've always argued that while cryptocurrency that enable transactions are useful, but effectively Bitcoin to me is just a very, very puffed up utility coin. I mean, that's all it really is. I do not see the argument that Bitcoin has incredible value over time. Sorry. Uh, on that ground, I may be very controversial. I may be even adults with the other directors of Valerian blockchain. But I don't believe that Bitcoin is really what we came here to do. Bitcoin was effectively the gateway drug to getting us into the cryptocurrency and digital asset world. And it is therefore, as I explained in the book, 
the Ford Model T of cryptocurrency, a position, a job which it has done fabulously. And hopefully we'll get back to that slightly later in the show because I want to try and get through the many questions. Keep them coming, ladies and gentlemen. It's wonderful to see people asking questions online and uh, through various functions. We've got a multiplicity of windows rattling along here. And hello to the Telegram group. I can see you in the bottom corner of my picture this evening as well. Romilly Wakeling, thank you so much for your questions. Ooh, what are my thoughts about incorporating blockchain into artificial intelligence with a data escalator? Am I allowed to answer hashtag it's complicated and actually just move on to the next question? Or would that really seem just a little bit of a cop-out? I think, seriously, I mean, to give this the question that uh, that we can manage to, to see, it's very feasible that artificial intelligence deployed with the heap of data that is going to be available on blockchains and in other circumstances is going to provide amazing opportunities. It already does for the data that can be sifted through. Therefore, if we look at the quantum of data, and I talk about how, I mean, effectively the whole world took yonks to manage to get up to a gigabyte. And now we're looking at actually children being born today who are effectively going to be managing petabytes and petabytes of data over time. That therefore suggests it is going to be a huge opportunity going forward, Romilly. It's very, very exciting, the whole data management system. And thank you very much, Peter Pan. You've just left a comment via YouTube. Good evening, all. It's a great listen already. And thanks for answering some of the key questions myself and Simon submitted. And thank you very much, Simon. Actually, I know you were doing sterling service asking questions along with Peter with all of the different questions that Peter Sakon has left. Peter does a great job as administrator of our Telegram group for Valerian Blockchain. Thank you very much. Now, Peter and Simon, how do you see the government's supporting influencing exchanges going forward? It's a great question. I tell you what, it's a great question because in the old analog world of exchanges, whence I come, the biggest success factor for a lot of national exchanges is actually how well the government gets behind it. So therefore, for example, you could look at a lot of um, emerging Central Eastern European states, which was a fascinating experiment from the late 1980s on, and see that you know, Poland, okay, Poland's sixth largest country in Europe in terms of essentially population and land mass within the European Union. It's a phenomenally high, you know, thriving nation these days. But it was not always thus. And yet the government there really got behind the stock exchange, the Warsaw Stock Exchange, from the very early days. The government actually controls it to this day. But unlike many other countries, one could argue around Czechoslovakia, well, Czech Republic, Slovakia, the Baltic states, and so on, where the governments were much more apathetic about getting behind exchanges, that really propelled the marketplace forward. If you're going to have a really successful exchange, it is good to have the government at least showing you some degree of support for the exchange marketplace. And let's face it, what is there not to like for governments about exchanges? Because exchanges are just bazaars. They're just like the old fashioned Roman Agora, the original marketplaces of the, of the Roman Empire. They are an epicenter of neutral business. And as I discussed in Victory or Death, they are something which essentially is a very, very interesting epicentral model to e-commerce. 
And if you think about it in that sense, it's very interesting because there's a lot of talk at the moment about the regulation of crypto exchanges. There's a lot of talk about the regulation of cryptocurrency, etc. Traditional financial exchanges have been regulated for many, many decades and centuries, yet actually a lot of e-commerce gets away without being regulated because it's not a regulated marketplace per se, but Airbnb, Uber, Mercado Libre, eBay, they're all essentially exchanges. I mean, at the core of what they do, they are bringing together a pool of liquidity and enabling transactions for people. So therefore, governments really, really need to get their act together and be supporting and influencing for exchanges going forward. And certainly the governments who are most coherently intelligent about embracing a central bank digital currency, about embracing great settlement modes for different marketplaces, they're going to be the winners in the future. And this is a very interesting thing, because if you make your market open right now, financial centers of the world, those of you who are watching this, you have a great opportunity to build content like you've never been able to build content before by being a good, sound representative who supports the exchange industry and enables exchanges within your own backyard. Now, Romilly asks a question. I'm going to come just a second. I think that we've also got a question from uh, Carl Stone on, on YouTube, which I'm going to come to in a moment. It's very interesting. Thank you, Carl. So Romilly's asking, the Bank of England has freedom to set interest rates, which can be used to help inflation. This creates a system which is biased to bankers and seem to profit from such measures the most. Would an effective blockchain exchange contradict this monastery policy or would this break the flawed banking the flawed banking system to benefit the masses great question Romilly okay so here's a fundamental issue which is actually terrifying the central banking business why do we have central bank digital currency at the moment the answer is actually because the central bankers are very very eager to get together and enable something which keeps their closed shop monopoly you see it as being a flaw, the fact that the banks effectively have a monopoly on how they deal with money. Actually, the way the banking system has been set up was to enable the bankers to take risk and have essentially their own privilege, exorbitant privilege, one might argue, by creating money out of thin air, which is fractional reserve banking, which is essentially holding a fraction of the actual cash amount at the Bank of England that you need in order to manage to finance all of the lending that you do in the economy. Actually, that's a great system, works really well, enables risks when it's motoring along properly, great thing. Difficulty, and this is a fundamental difficulty that we do have in the crypto economy, is that a blockchain, which is has a finite amount of cryptocurrency, a finite amount of digital asset on it, doesn't allow for the same sort of um, sometimes elegant, sometimes inelegant inflation of the number of units in circulation, because obviously the blockchain says, no, 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 there are only 21 million Bitcoin in circulation. So therefore, XYZ Bank can't suddenly say, oh, we've got 5 million Bitcoin, we've suddenly lent to people because they don't exist. So actually, there's a big problem coming from the money system, because particularly with quantitative easing, funny money, which they've been flooding the system with over the course of the last umpteen decades, uh, well, two decades, essentially, since 9-11, you've got a very odd system where the central bankers effectively control the economy, which I'm not sure 
either ends well or looks particularly good and also may provoke a huge flood of people wanting to buy digital assets in order to avoid a fiat money possible meltdown. So the central bankers have got difficulty there. At the same time, cryptocurrency, we have to find ways to design the opportunity to create a kind of a new fractional reserve banking. So some way that we can essentially create money on balance sheets that allows people to borrow and lend more freely. Because if you simply have all the money in a peer-to-peer network, that means, for example, in Bitcoin, eventually you will only have 21 million Bitcoin on one side that can be lent against the rest of the world economy, which causes all sorts of other kerfuffles in the system. So the truth is the banking system is flawed. The truth is there's a big issue coming up for central bankers in the course of the next five to 10 years, because I think they've pretty much blown things up. But third of all, we've got to find a way that the crypto economy and the digital asset economy can manage to resolve these problems. And good grief, I think there's probably a couple of books in that alone as an argument. I hope that helps your your answer. Romilly, thank you very, very much. Um, And it's really useful. Now, Peter and Simon, they extend a question from that. I'm coming to Carl Stone, your question in a second. Do you think it's about time governments of major countries started taking cryptocurrency more seriously? You know, Peter and Simon, that's a great question. The simple fact of the matter is, I would just like to see government that does digital coherently, because truly the one thing we've noted, for example, during the the, the COVID-19 fiasco, is how disorganized and analog the blob currently is. And actually, governments and politicians are horribly analog. Angela Merkel, who's about to retire as the leader of Germany, seems really not to have the remotest clue how computers work, as did indeed many British prime ministers over the course of the last 20 years. I'm thinking particularly about, say, Tony Blair, who I don't think ever actually used a computer when he was in office. Equally, the likes of, uh, well, Theresa May, who I mentioned earlier. None of them really seem to me to be understanding the technology that goes forward. And certainly I don't have a lot of confidence in in Boris Johnson. And I have no confidence in Joe Biden whatsoever that he even understands what the interweb is actually, because I don't think he can use it. And that's a big worry because suddenly we look to have a gerontocratic regime, which makes us look a little bit like Soviet Russia during the course of say the 1970s, 1980s with all of these, you know, old men who look rather out of touch. So, Is it about time that governments in major countries started taking cryptocurrency more seriously? Yes, it's actually 10 years late. Carl Stone has asked a question. Allow me to pause for breath just at this point in time. My name is Patrick L. Young. I am conducting an Ask Me Anything as the first episode of the winter series, as we're coming into episode 38 of the IPO vid live stream. It's genuinely in Patrick's opinion this evening. Don't forget, if you're interested in other products that we produce, I am executive director at Valerium Blockchain. Please do your own research before investing. But I think we're in the business of trying to put together an exciting new future for the future of the digital economy. Thank you, Romilly Wakeling. Amazing answer you've said, and I love that smiley face. Really appreciate it. I'm delighted at all the questions we've had today. And gosh, I'm so pleased about the Telegram group from Valerium and how many of you have engaged with us during the course of this AMA already. Thank you very, very much. And we're getting pretty much record viewing figures as well, I see, which is absolutely fantastic. Now, Therefore, um, Carl Stone has asked a question. How do you see DeFi exchanges being used in everyday banking life? I'm not sure I do, actually, Carl. Okay, again, I'm going to be very controversial here. But actually, 
DeFi, decentralized finance, is a wonderful concept, but it runs entirely contrary to pretty much wherever you start law coming from. I don't know. I mean, maybe you think it's Hammurabi about 4,000 years ago, whenever Hammurabi was around, or possibly even before that. But certainly, I mean, when the ancient Phoenicians were trading, say, with Malta and other countries around the Levant and the Mediterranean 10,000 years ago, and they were exchanging trinkets and bits of glass and so on for all manners of different pieces of cloth and food and so on, there were laws, and the laws came out from a centralized system. And if you look at what, for example, Gary Gensler is doing, now I appreciate Gary Gensler seems being very controversial by many at the moment in the world of financial markets, but actually it was absolutely obvious from the second he was first mooted as chairman of the SEC that one of the things he would do would be an enormous clampdown on the whole crypto economy, and he wants to get that properly regulated. And in his case, properly regulated means somewhat regulated in a dirigiste fashion. So to go back to the legal system, I'm really fundamentally having a problem with decentralized finance. Decentralization of lots of things, lots of data, perfectly reasonable. But the idea that fundamentally the exchange world is going to work on the basis that everything takes place in a transactional space away from the regulated legal world, but somehow or other, everything gets settled on the basis of a decentralized blockchain. And that is essentially outside of the legal remit of countries. It's just not going to happen. Okay, and, and I realize that lots of people in the DeFi world are going to be really upset and they're going to say, how can you be in blockchain and doing these things? Because here's why. We're a regulated first blockchain company as Valerium. I believe very, very strongly that we must adhere to the regulatory fiat of what goes on in the world. Many of those regulations can be annoying, somewhat overly predict pres prescriptive. Some of them can be actually quite stupid in some parts of the world, some regulations, okay? but you've got to adhere to them. And the truth is law comes from a central place. And until somebody can convince me that they're going to turn the legal system inside out, that's essentially going to preclude decentralized finance until we can reach the legal system being turned inside out. So at the moment, I'm really bearish on this whole idea of decentralized finance and everything's going to go out there and it'll all be totally cushy and we won't be. That is a libertarian dream gone mad. We are going to retain a huge vestige of centralization in finance with distributed networks, by the way, with a lot of execution. But ultimately, every regulatory system on earth says, Someone must be responsible for this trade. That runs absolutely contrary to the concepts of decentralized finance. So I'm very, very skeptical that DeFi exchanges will actually even survive the course of the next six or nine months in a pure play decentralized fashion, because I think the regulatory system is coming for them. I think they are alien to the existing legal system. And it's incredibly hard to see how that possibly um, goes in terms of working with our legal and regulatory system. Now, at that point in time, I'm going to pause for a brief drink while Marianne is going to put the next question on the screen. Marianne, take it away.
So here we have an interesting question. Accusative. You say that many exchanges have been protected by governments. How do you think that will influence future advancements in blockchain exchanges if they restrict them or heavily regulate in favor of sluggish, outdated exchanges? Great question, Romney. I mean, one of the biggest problems we have in the world at the moment is the, the idea of national champions. And we see that very obviously in, in a couple of areas. I mean, in the old days, it used to be all industrial policy, and actually that's still the case in a lot of countries. Strange enough, the countries that are not usually the most prosperous in the world, and it's also a concern that in, say, for example, the European Union, the national champion or the European champion idea is still very much vaunted, and that actually happens to coincide with the European Union's decline as an economic power over the course of the last 20, 30, 40 years. Airlines and exchanges are both blessed and cursed with their kind of national branding. And to that degree, it, it is very, very frustrating because you've got, well, for example, take the London Stock Exchange. I mean, the London Stock Exchange Group is a massive business. It's a, what, a $60 billion market cap business there or thereabouts. It has all sorts of influential businesses across the world. And yet, Actually, the London, Stock, the London Stock Exchange Group is only one of a multiplicity of exchanges that currently function in the UK, yet still it seems as if the London Stock Exchange Group gets a certain amount of regulatory favour and political favour because that's the one that also is the default mention in all of the newspapers, for example, to the detriment of the much smaller, it's only a few hundred million dollar proposition, Aqua Stock Exchange, on which Valerium is listed, but actually Aquas offers a whole completely different market model. In that sense, government protection of exchanges is bad for the economy. And I think the message we have to get out there is that competition in exchanges enables governments to solve niche problems. It's just like any other part of the economy. If we only had one department store serving the whole country, we wouldn't have a vibrant high street. We're sitting here at the moment um, in a hotel in Mayfair, not that far away from Oxford Street and the buzzing entrepot of Bond Street and all of those shops. Just imagine if there's only one shop, it would be a disaster. Likewise, if there's only one exchange, you do not have competition for exchange services. You do not have innovation in different products. And therefore, one of the wonderful things of blockchain exchanges, whatever they're bringing to market, they are bringing really fascinating potential assets to market, whether that's in the tokenization of property, whether that's in the tokenization of other items. The NFT boom, absolutely fascinating. I'm not really sure that whatever it is, sickly green frogs and gerbils uh, as an illustration and pixel are really my thing but hey someone likes them so they should be entirely entitled to have an opportunity to understand the risks and invest in them therefore where we're at at the moment is we need the governments and regulators in the world to genuinely engage in a constructive dialogue because there is something much worse than having a multiplicity of exchanges that is having over-the-counter markets quiet backstreet markets, markets where people are effectively unregulated in every sense. And actually what we've seen throughout history is the markets that are not regulated are the ones that cause incredible economic crises when they implode, whereas having a regulated exchange marketplace in all manner of products is something which fundamentally helps economic growth. And that's what exchanges are in, the economic growth business. And if you have an honest, 
marketplace. Remember the maxim of the London Stock Exchange, may I'm dicta, may I'm pactum. My word is my bond. That's the most important thing that we can have because without trust, we have nothing. And without trust in the crypto economy, the digital asset economy, all of the future of fintech, we have nothing whatsoever. And that's the most vital thing that we need to understand. And that's why we continue to have centralized legal systems and traditions and so on. So therefore, wherever governments restrict the innovation of exchanges, which are trying to offer sensible, coherent products, which in some way, shape or form, fulfill some form of economic need, then those governments are going to be pushing back economic growth. And I think it's very, very important, therefore, that they don't push back economic growth and they give us something new and exciting that are an opportunity for us to manage to move the economy forward. Next question, please. Can blockchain revolutionize world business? Yes. Would you like me to expand? Yes, you'd like me to expand. Okay, look, ultimately, think about it this way. I mean, there are all sorts of technologies that solve problems and do great things for us, but they don't solve everything. I mean, television gave us a great opportunity to learn more, to be entertained, to understand, to see pictures, to see the world out there, etc., etc. But it wasn't particularly good at, you know, curing people's illnesses, despite the efforts of, say, the presenters of Blue Peter to manage to convince us all to be jolly good people in that great Monty Python parody sketch. Thus, blockchain, where people can get a little bit overwrought is the idea that blockchain cures every possible. It's the ultimate panacea to everybody's needs. Simple truth of the matter is blockchain cures lots of possibilities where there are sticky problems. Let's give you one example. I mentioned earlier on the fact that we were talking about um, auditing. Now, look, auditing is a sticky, tricky business. What have we got the world over? We've got four major audit practices. Frankly, they're trying to do a very, very difficult job. They're trying very, very hard, but it's incredibly difficult because you can't look at every single transaction that goes on. You can't possibly manage to do that by looking through this, the receipts and everything like that. If you look at where we are now with the ability to have blockchain-based real-time auditing, that's phenomenal. It goes back a step to what Romilly was asking about the whole idea of using artificial intelligence in data. It also means that when somebody makes a mistake or somebody makes a fraudulent transaction in a spreadsheet somewhere in the world, distributed ledgers are wonderful because instead of simply having a spreadsheet which sits in the office in Atlanta, Georgia, and a spreadsheet which sits in the office in, say, Valletta, Malta, and one that sits in perhaps Gibraltar or somewhere, that is a fundamental issue for people in terms of they can make a mistake and it's very difficult for that to manage to be countered by head office. Distributed ledgers allow us to see the errors in real time. It allows us to audit the errors in real time. It allows auditing software of the future to go through and actually manage to do a great deal of the heavy lifting. Probably not great news if you're someone who hopes to be a zillion dollar audit partner in the course of the next number of years, because actually I suspect blockchain-based technology is about to eat your lunch. 
There, of course, we come back to another problem to go back to the question Romilly was asking, which is, again, we need the governments of the world to enable this change rather than being beholden to, say, for example, an accounting auditing mafia who are trying to protect their jobs rather than letting the Schumpeterian capital market revolution bloom. Another epic question from Romilly. It's reduced me to the point where I can barely be seen over the screen. As of January 2021, there were 4.66 billion active internet users worldwide, 59.5% of the global population, which is what about 7.8 billion at the moment, isn't it? Of this total, 92.6, 4.32 billion access the internet via mobile devices. Gosh, I'm actually quite surprised it's as few as 92.6, actually. This means that just over 40% of the global population do not have digital asset access. How will this digital divide affect the social and economic revolution the effective blockchain economy will bring? Should an effective blockchain exchange be accessible to the masses? One, remember Paul Gallico's great comment about being a novelist. When he was a novelist, he used to still go back to his old job in the newspapers and report on baseball at the weekends. When he was asked why he, as a great and famous novelist, was heading out to watch the baseball and sit in the bleachers and write notes and have to pay attention to the game and ultimately write a report, he said, because all human life is there. That's what exchanges are. Exchanges must represent all human life. That's why the Agora in Rome was the epicenter of gossip. It was the epicenter of the ladies coming around to demonstrate the latest fashions that they were wearing and talk to people because it was the epicenter of business, the exchange of all possible commodities and goods. The more people that are in the exchange business, the better. At the moment, what we have is a whole series, a myriad of problems here, digital access, big problem for those 3 billion people that we need to get online as fast as possible. And they're going to come online with a, with a mobile device. Incidentally, they're not going to be using something like a desktop computer. We need to get them online. We need to get them engaged in the economy. And more importantly, we need to give them a currency that they can transact with us with because the whatever that is, Central African Zonk that nobody accepts outside of Zonkia is just not going to cut it in the modern world. And the faster we can get people online, the faster people can get ed people educated and raising their standards, the faster we can get them interacting into that global economy. And good grief, it is incredibly exciting because we've already managed to raise, without the digital world per se, many, many billions of people out of poverty in my lifetime. And that's something which is not talked about remotely enough because when I was a child, zillions of children starved every day. And actually we've managed to make great strides in making that world better. I'm super optimistic. I really am a Reaganite sunny optimist when it comes to these sorts of things. We've got incredible opportunities coming forward in the economy of the world, bringing people online, bringing people to the blockchain, to the blockchain exchanges, to the opportunity that they can interact with the rest of the world digitally, effortlessly with a keystroke, has got to be the biggest opportunity to raise incomes in not just the most poor of nations, but the emerging middle income nations as well. Because now you don't have to get on a boat travel to the other side of the world in order to find a job physically in a rich country. You can interact with that country directly through the internet. And that's why I remain hugely excited at the possibility of what we're doing here, because this is truly, to borrow a Goldman Sachs chief executive's phrase from years ago, God's work, raising prosperity across the world and doing it with less 
expensive, much less frictional, not quite frictionless, but much less frictional interaction and commerce. And that's a hugely exciting possibility. So that brings us to what's the biggest challenge facing the evolution of blockchain, say Peter and Simon. Gosh, I think the biggest single challenge facing the evolution of blockchain right now is probably the regulatory nature of the world. Maybe we can get that question on screen, please, because, oh, I can actually see myself again on the screen, you know, if, if it makes any difference to you to see me. Here's my lovely visage with a much shorter question. The biggest challenge facing the evolution of blockchain, quite simply, I think, regulation, getting to a sensible, coherent customer mix that enables the opportunity for all of us to have a decent, sensible blockchain world going forward. And that's something which can raise prosperity across the world. There are far too many people trying to build their own little gatehouses. It's like the 19th century and before where people operated water wheels and they had barriers on the roads. We need everything tarmacked. We need everything sorted in terms of the road network. I mean, when I say tarmac, I mean that, I mean that metaphorically. We we need a connected digital interactive space that is not one that is basically suffering huge blockages around the world to go from country A to country B, um, which is obviously going to be an issue that's that's going to be quite uh, quite quite exciting in terms of you know what's the what's the opportunity for these sorts of these sorts of possibilities going forward. And I've got something coming in. Um, it's interesting because you know. Avabakid, you're asking what I consider the major regulatory hurdles that Valerium has to overcome. Look, I can't answer that because it would be materially non-public information. It would get us into, into a lot of quite nitty-gritty conversations. I don't think we don't look at it as what are the major regulatory hurdles that we have to overcome. We look at it the opposite way around. We're building product to facilitate the opportunities for global commerce we will use the best technologies that we can find to link that together and we will make sure that that is built in a regulatory fashion and i think one of the biggest problems we've seen to date which is not something that valerium is going to be doing while i'm involved in the organization very simply there is a lot of blockchain-based business. There's a lot of crypto-based business, for example, where people effectively went, oh, we don't think it'll be regulated. And they came up with 100,000 reasons why they thought it wouldn't be regulated. And there are many, I mean, multi-zillion dollar businesses who are out there at the moment fighting, possibly fighting for their lives because they simply thought that they could manage to be big enough and not regulated. Simple truth of the matter is that there are so many things that must be put together right when you're building from scratch. And I'm sorry that that means that we can't say anything. And I'm sorry that it takes us slightly longer time to manage to actually answer the, the questions and deliver to you the, the idea of what we're doing. But I need you to understand that we don't see these as being incredible hurdles. We see everything as an opportunity. Romilly, thank you for sharing your knowledge with us. It's incredible to ask a leading expert in the market and exchanges questions and get honest answers. Good grief. I think I might be blushing at this point in time. Maybe it's just the heat of the, the stage lamp above me. Um, thank you, Romilly. Thank you very much, Vavakid. Um, 
Do I think World Mobile Token will be a success? Haven't a clue. No idea whatsoever. I'm not going to speculate on anything. It's point in time, Ian. Sorry. Um, in the middle of this, and ask me anything about my book. I realise we're sort of veering off a little bit, but uh, but actually, I haven't been looking at it. So so I, I'm not going to make I'm not going to try and make a value judgment on that. By 2030, Peter asks me. Most governments around the world will create or adopt some form of virtual currency. Look, central bank digital currency for starters, the digital facsimile of the the pound in your pocket, if you like to to adopt that old Harold Wilsonian era phrase. That's coming very soon. What's very interesting, though, is you ask some form of virtual currency. Look at the debate that's going on in London, well, in the city of London, and I think it's fascinating. It's not getting a lot of media traction, largely because the media doesn't really understand the power of the city of London. Because the city of London, you know, we see this little bit on top, and the little bit on top is kind of like in stocks and stock markets generally. What there is, is this huge iceberg under the ground. I mean, it's absolutely enormous. And that's the wholesale marketplace. So understand this, something like 98.6% of the real time gross settlement of transactions in the UK banking system is wholesale. Retail, no matter how much damage we can do on a Saturday afternoon, whether you're going to watch football and you're buying a few beers or whether you're going to manage to go shopping in Oxford Street or wherever it is around the world, 1.4%, a couple of percent of the total amount of British banking. So therefore, what's going to be very interesting, of course, the next few years is first step of CBDC is obviously to try and protect the monopoly on money of the central banks. I'm not sure that actually works, by the way, but that, that's a very, very long conversation, possibly a whole further discussion itself. But you heard some of the some of the answers or some of the answers I was alluding to earlier. In terms of some form of virtual currency, it's going to be very interesting to see who goes for wholesale money, because wholesale monies, I think, are going to be a very, very important aspect to what comes up in the whole business of finance going forward and how financial centres differentiate, develop themselves in the future. Now, that develops onto your thought of what are your personal thoughts on blockchain identity for all? I think that's fascinating. I mean, I think blockchain identity, the truth is, the financial system, and this goes back to the, the very interesting question also that we had earlier on about you know, de decentralized finance, universal buyer identity, the, the declarations that you must have at the moment of UBO so that you understand who ultimately is the beneficial owner of a company. You have to have anti-money laundering and know your client for basically any financial transaction right now. And that's in becoming increasingly complex. Banks, financial institutions, regulators are interested in sources of funds to try and make sure that you know, you're not actually a front for Mr. Noriego or some other drug cartel. Therefore, blockchains become very important here because actually the regulatory system cannot survive with endlessly putting more and more files into a filing cabinet. I mean, it's also hideously inefficient because you can't cross-reference the data. So therefore, there have got to be solutions that come out that are going to be driven by technology. They're going to be driven by financial technology. And I think a lot of those are going to involve blockchains. It's a very, very exciting area. And I think we should all watch this space. Now, equally, Peter, you go on to say that in the not too distant future, a cross-border blockchain-based self-sovereign identity standard will emerge for individuals as well as physical and virtual assets. Do I agree? And when? I believe 
relatively soon that we will see those standards emerging. There are discussions at national and international levels where people are actually trying to make global standards for this stuff already, which is very, very interesting. Um, I can't say exactly when we're going to see it coming to fruition in a mass market sense, I mean, in the billions of people sense, but it is going to happen soon. Um, one of the biggest problems we're going to have, to go back to the Romilly inclusion question, of course, is how do you do anti-money laundering for um, a goat herder somewhere in the middle of you know, a stan? Someone who essentially may still be illiterate, uh, therefore may only have a fingerprint in order to sign their name, may not own any property, and may not actually have any utilities because they're taking water from a well, they're getting electricity in some sort of a ramshackle agreement, which is possibly a collectivized agreement to their village. So there become a lot of issues behind this to really get up to the 7.7, 7.8 billion people question. But for say, the 1 billion of the rich world, um, I think it's coming and it's gonna be coming within the next several years. And I think that's a very, very interesting development that we're going to be seeing coming up through the overall marketplace in the world. Now, um, what would you like me to answer next, production gallery, because you control what I'm about to say. I appreciate we're at seven o'clock, but I'm gonna give this another go to try and get through a few more of the questions because I really appreciate how much you've got. Are there any, well, try and stick to one on the screen because it's quite difficult for me to read two simultaneously. Thank you very much. We've got obviously a battle of fingers in the production gallery at the moment. Which one, according to me, will be the long-term winner, blockchain finance or cryptocurrency? Blockchain finance. Um, cryptocurrency, I mean, I think cryptocurrency is a kind of a relatively short-term development. Um, Asset-backed units are going to be the thing in the future. I said that actually 22 years ago in Capital Market Revolution. I talked about them as being electronic trading units. I talked about them being effectively backed by different forms of asset. I think, therefore, I mean, what we see at the moment in cryptocurrency terms are relatively vague, simple, early gateway drugs, as I described blockchain or Bitcoin earlier on. I think the sophistication we're going to see through those systems going forward is going to be quite incredible because certainly going back to, for example, this argument of over national currency being Bitcoin. I mean, that's actually, I'm sorry, that's laughable because the Bitcoin blockchain is simply incapable of functioning at the sort of scale that is necessary to be a national currency. So therefore, blockchain finance is going to be the winner going forward because blockchain finance is going to be a holistic winner across the whole realm of assets that become digital. I hope that answers your question, Nabarin. Thank you very much for joining us. I do believe this is the first time we've seen you on IPO Vid Livestream. Really a joy to see you all together. Another question, please. Any concerns on security of blockchain in terms of cyber attacks and the integrity of data used and held. Oh God, yes. I mean, I think that, that, look, the one thing that actually keeps everybody awake at night is integrity of data, the hacking of data. There is a huge amount has to be done. One of the problems we've seen with a lot of um, cyber up to now is probably what we call GitHub mania, where people have been picking lots of things off. GitHub is wonderful open source software, lots of things being shared, and certainly we're headed towards a very exciting mobile-driven, low-code, maybe no-code environment to a certain degree. But obviously, the most physically important thing is, you know, keeping your money safe. And in the old days, 
Well, where was your money being held safely? It was being held safely in bank vaults. Nowadays, it's being held as bits and bytes. We have to make that as secure as possible. 20 odd years ago, we had a huge panic over a Y2K thing, which actually turned out to be vaporware. But certainly in the modern day and age, we have to work incredibly hard. And we will see everyone working incredibly hard in the industry for as fast and as long as possible, as long as they need to, in order to secure from cyber attacks and ensure the integrity of data that is being used and deployed because of course garbage in garbage out is a standard maxim which we have seen for many years not merely in certain aspects of the media and we're back on Romilly's got her variation on a similar thing with ransomware attacks on the rise one aspect of an effective blockchain technology can bring is cybersecurity to ensure the integrity of a message or data do you think blockchain can be more effective in preventing sophisticated attacks than existing defenses already deployed yes I'm not a cybersecurity expert so I'm not going to try and jump into the actual protocols of how things are being done etc but obviously one of the most important things to understand is that actually pretty much all thefts take place because of people tending to do something that leaves some low hanging fruit so therefore you have instances of people who actually forget to lock their car and it gets stolen or they don't secure something and it gets broken into at the same time, what's very interesting is how the crypto economy has matured and what we all thought was going to be super anonymous, and I get that goes back to all of the data questions we've had earlier on as well, is that with particular addresses on the blockchain suddenly being discovered, we want to be trying to understand as best as possible how to make those networks very secure. And I think that the asset holding of networks is going to become very, very important and therefore the walleting and passporting of all of those assets is going to become a much much more vital function to which people are going to be adding more and more and more variations on a theme of security in order to make that work going forward the trick of course is to do that without actually making it so impossible that like well many british banking apps these days when you try to log in the one thing you discover you can't remember is actually your password or your security question Peter and Simon, thank you again, Romilly. With everything you've achieved in fintech, you flatterers, where do you see yourself in the next few years? Look, Peter, I don't take on assignments lightly. And I was ecstatic to be invited by Richard Pulden to meet him in Gibraltar a few months ago and talk about what could be done with the blockchain economy and how we could play an incredibly exciting role for that with Valerium. And in the terms of where do I see myself in the next few years, I'm really excited about the opportunities we have to build that marketplace. I'm in the exchange business. Uh, I'm currently also an advisor to an exchange called Arawak in the Caribbean. I work very, very closely with a series of exchanges in the world, and I'm looking forward to continuing to build exchange assets because I think exchanges are the electronic commerce business model of the 21st century and beyond. And I think it's very important to remember, I mean, I define the exchange world, I think Young's Pyramid, which is essentially the triangle of exchanges. And the media will always tell you, oh, that, that top of the triangle has been narrowing because you've seen all of these big mega mergers. But the truth is the bottom of the pyramid is expanding all the time because we're seeing many new marketplaces being built. And I don't just mean the pure crypto asset markets, but that's a whole area in itself. It's been very exciting. There are massive opportunities to manage to make better regulated financial opportunities 
that reach everybody in the world. And one of the things that really excites me and gets me up in the morning, and that's why I've mentioned this Telegram group several times during the course of the day, we're 600 strong at the moment in the Valerium Telegram group. It's run independently of the company by investors, for investors, and I love what you do in terms of sharing information because you can go out onto YouTube today and you can find thousands of hours of discussion by people who are experts in different aspects of trading and investing in financial market and fintech, not merely just Patrick L. Young. So therefore, the opportunity to learn is there. And obviously, that's how we connect people through the network in order to build a bigger, better economy. Because if not, the alternative is victory or death. I mean, it's a binary. We've got to either win through victory or we die. And that's not something that I'm very excited doing. I suspect there's probably a few questions we've left behind at this point in time, but I'm wary of the fact that we're 70 minutes in. Here's what I'm going to do. Next week, I'm going to be live at the Intercontinental Exchange in London. Intercontinental Exchange, of course, owned the New York Stock Exchange. The New York Stock Exchange, most famous because their chairman and the chief executive of the Intercontinental Exchange is one Jeffrey Sprecher, who's the man who wrote the foreword to my book, Victory or Death. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. I'm really, really honoured to have had you write this forward and a very, very good forward it is. I would love you to pick up a copy of Victory or Death if you get an opportunity. Next week, I'm going to be coming live from ICE. I've got a really interesting guest I've got, and we're looking forward to discussing all about the whole business of interest rate futures and other aspects of that ICE business with Steve Hamilton. And before I do that, if there are any questions I haven't picked up on today, I'm going to answer them at the start of next week's show. How does that sound as a deal, ladies and gentlemen? Because we promised to do a 60-minute live stream today. We're 70 minutes into this one already. If you get a chance, pick up a copy of Victory or Death. Thank you very, very much for making this such an active show. Thank you in particular to those who have been the most active of our questioners. I really appreciate Peter and Simon, all the work that you've done putting together questions. Romilly, I'm sure there are a couple of your questions are left behind. I promise I'll answer them next week. To all the other people who asked questions, uh, really, thank you very, very much for the information. I hope that... I was able to give you great answers, uh, Vapicade, and there were also a couple of other people who have not appeared on my list so far. I'm terribly sorry that I've not named you this evening. I'd really like to. Carl Stone, I know you asked a question during the course of the evening, and also um, i particularly like to thank everybody who's been asking questions today. On that note, ladies and gentlemen, we are more than 10 minutes over. Thank you very much to Arminia, Marianne and Beata, who've done a great job in production today. Thank you to Racy for scheduling this show. Thank you to all of you who asked questions. Uh, Peter Pan, Romilly, Northeast 14, Vapicade, uh, Ian, and there was also a gentleman by the name of Das, I do believe, who asked a question as well. Thank you very much. This has been Patrick L. Young. This has been an AMA about my book, Victory or Death. Coming up in this series of IPOVID live stream, we're going to have a multiplicity of guests talking about exchanges, talking about crypto. Coming up in, I think it's about next month, we've got Crypto Dad himself, uh, Christopher John Carlo, the Honorable Christopher John Carlo, the former chairman of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. He's going to be talking to us about his new book that gets launched that day. My name is Patrick L. Young. This has been an epic live stream. Thank you so much for all of your questions. You had an opportunity to ask me anything about my book. 
Next week, I promise I'll start off by answering the remaining questions that I didn't get to today. Thank you all very, very much. My name is Patrick L. Young. Catch me via exchangeinvest.com every day if you're interested in the business of bourses and the related pith. And of course, if you'd like to speak to some of the wonderful people who've been asking questions today, many of them can be found in the Valerium Telegram blockchain group. I'll see you live from Intercontinental Exchange London next Tuesday, same time, 6 p.m. London. I'll still be here. My name is Patrick L. Young. I wish you a great week in life, blockchain and markets.